Past, present, future, live. In-depth conversations and exclusive live performances featuring some of the most dynamic artists from the world of contemporary music. From Osiris Media, this is Past, Present, Future Live. I'm your host, RJB. Since the early 90s, Ted Leo has been one of the most progressive forces in East Coast independent music, with a unique combination of punk and folk, soul and hardcore, tradition and experimentation. From his band Chisel, to Ted Leo and the Pharmacists, to his solo work, his style has evolved, but he's always stayed true to his punk roots, musically and politically. In this interview, we talk about his musical journey, his collaboration with Amy Mann, whether music activism is living up to the moment right now, and what Ted from 2000 would think of Ted in 2020. At the conclusion of our interview, we'll hear an exclusive live performance, links to the video of this performance, as well as a Spotify playlist containing all the music discussed in this episode are available in the show notes. Enjoy the show. All right, I'm here with Ted Leo. Ted, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm okay. Hanging in there. Yourself? I'm doing all right. Thank you for joining us. We're going to have a, a fun conversation, but to start, I want to go all the way back and see, do you have an earliest musical memory? Earliest musical memory? Wow. That's tough. I mean, I, I don't know. This might sound a little cliche, but I music has always been a part of my life. I mean, there, there are definitely things that struck me, you know, uh, when I was younger that I remember. Um, I think later when I... Later, relative to when I was younger, which at this point in my life is still part of when I was younger, <laughs> um, but uh, when I was even younger and, uh, you know, first got into things like the Ramones and, and whatnot, I, I did have a memory of hearing the Ramones, do you remember rock and roll radio on the radio? I think it was probably AM WNBC in New York at the time uh, in the car and that sort of grabbing me, but but most of my earliest memories would probably involve, oh, I have, you know what? I do have an earlier memory, and actually it's a whole series of memories. In a, in a house that I lived in when I was much younger, I do remember exploring my parents' Beatles records largely, and it was pretty much entirely Beatles that I explored on my own at that point. And, you know, hearing things when I was, you know, younger than 10, like, uh, uh, revolution number nine <laughs> things were definitely definitely interesting you know? it's interesting the beatles come up in every conversation we have <laughs> as an early yeah, influence the alpha band do you think that the beatles stuck with you as you started playing music yourself is it an ongoing influence or was it more of like a, a childhood influence oh it, without a doubt it would be an ongoing influence to the extent that when one gets into punk you know one is naturally prone to um rejecting certain things out of hand. Uh, and I certainly understand why, uh, especially, you know, by the late 80s, you know, before I think there was much of a critical reevaluation of the Beatles and they had really kind of settled into the quote unquote classic rock trough, you know, <laughs> a lot of people I knew would reject things like that out of hand. And I, I would get into arguments with them, not just about the Beatles, but other things. Like I, I'm a huge Bee Gees fan early, all Bee Gees, but a lot of people don't know a ton about 60s Bee Gees, you know, and um, 
what amazing songwriters and, and melodicists there were and everything. I remember getting into heated arguments with people about, specifically about the Beatles and the Bee Gees. Yeah. It makes sense given the timing, right? Yeah, like yeah. They, neither of those bands experienced their like resurgence of coolness at that time, right? Right, right, exactly. And do you remember an album that really drew you in? You mentioned the Ramones, and I know you've talked about Rush in the past. Is there one that like you point to that really kind of like piqued your interest in music? Yeah. So I did a lot of time with uh, Rubber Soul when I was young, and uh, I have a, I have some like early memories of being on a swing set in a in a, my backyard and singing Rubber Soul songs to myself. But I think the 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 two records that I remember very specifically like these are my records and i put them on my record player and i sit there and listen to them uh were the american mono version of meet the beatles which would in america would have been the first record and a best of buddy holly record that i had and this would this would still be like mid 70s you know so I read something you wrote about Rush, mm. sort of in defense of Rush or, or just about your Rush fandom. But in, in that article, you said that you said as Catholic school kids, self-destruction was pretty much the only option on the menu other than sports, <laughs> which one could make the case falls under the heading of self-destruction. Sure. Uh, that's a quote. That, <laughs> and, and that wasn't about Rush. It was sort of about a, a Rush memory. Right. But it, it seems like you've you mentioned punk music before and you mentioned the kind of sense of rebellion. Did music make you into more of a rebel or did you identify with music as a way of expressing this rebellion that you had within you? That's an interesting question. I think that probably rebellious expressions in music resonated with sentiments that I had, um, but not because of rebellion per se. There were things that happened in my life that did set me into a, a place of opposition in certain ways, but most of the rebellion in music, if you're not listening to like white power music or something, you know, is, <laughs> is largely uh, socially conscious. So what it carries with it is a kernel of of a vision of like a better way, you know, a way that things could or should be. And I think that's probably what resonated in me for the most part, more than rebellion for the sake of it, you know, or opposition for the sake of it. And I'm curious, I know you grew up Catholic, as, as I mentioned in that quote, and you, mm -hmm. you went on to Notre Dame. Did religion come into play for you early on probably. In, in terms of, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, um, What's the, there's a spiritualized song, No God, Only Religion. <laughs> um, and um, that probably, I mean, no, not probably, without a doubt it did. I, I think that in particular, the kind of Catholicism that I grew up with, I was taught by a lot of the same nuns and priests that taught my parents, you know, it was, it was uh, a little bit of an older, like New York-y ethnic Catholicism, a social justice, social gospel kind of Catholicism. And I think that without a doubt, not religion per se, like not the hope of an afterlife or anything so much as the, you know, I say this as someone who largely thinks that religion is kind of a net negative in the world at this point in my life. So take this with a grain of salt. But I think that the image of the crucifix, you know, was, was something that both literally, of course, and figuratively like loomed over my life, you know, and there are a billion ways that we can discuss how that, can I curse in this podcast? Yeah. yeah <laughs> how that fucked me up wildly, you know, but, but there are also a bunch of ways in which I think I carry, uh, you know, I appreciate it. Uh, I remember hearing this guy 
kind of getting into the first throes of his like you know rejection of of religion um phase and and being like yeah you know it's so fucked up like you look at this like tortured body on the cross you know and like i totally get that at the same time i always actually the real human gut level like visceral reaction to the wizened sinewy christ body on a on a cross bleeding for the rest of humanity yeah it's something that probably in equal parts fucked me up and and set me on a decent path in life you know by the time you went to notre dame for college which was i think part of that path in in more ways than one did you know that you wanted to form a band in college and and is that how chisel came together or was it more coincidence than that uh a little bit of both i mean when it comes to Notre Dame in particular, I don't have a lot of great feelings about the institution or my time there. It was one of the worst stretches of my life. And I it's funny that you bring this up because I just saw uh, somebody who tweeted, uh, you know, man, how did th- how did Notre Dame in the 90s produce both uh, Umphreys McGee and Ted Leo? <laughs> you know? And I was like, you know, did they produce me or did, you know, in some ways I wonder if, um, if it was like a blocker for me, like if I'd be a better artist at this point, if I'd have, if I'd have just either not gone to college or, you know, gone somewhere else. But that said, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't have met the other people in Chisel and I, you know, I think, um, I think we were a really good band and, uh. You know, in the sense that uh, we were thrown together in a place that didn't have a lot of us, um, Notre Dame probably had something to do <laughs> with uh, with our coming together. Yeah, playing music during college was that like uh, what was that experience like? I mean, did it did it take over your life? Did you balance it with education? What was that like for you? Yeah, this is where I, I lay some of the blame for the bad years on my on my own shoulders because it did take over my life. In a lot of ways, you know, I I slid into that bad kind of uh, mode where things that I really cared about, you know, I would get A's in. Things that put me off, I would put all the way off. <laughs> um, and you know, and learned that you know, I I learned how to play guitar during that that time period. So. Did you did you know the Umphreys guys? By the way, they were a little bit younger than me, but I I did know um, at least one of them. I was friends with his older sister, actually. Oh, okay, mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, they're 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 friends of mine, and it's mm-hmm. interesting that oh, right. you wouldn't expect Notre Dame to produce all these like <laughs> bands that are so far away from what you think of. But yeah, you know, there there's something there with. I guess it gets back to the idea of rebellion and whether that pushes people further going to a place like that for college. If if you had gone to Oberlin or something, would you have pushed as hard in the musical direction, I think, is, is something I'm curious about. I mean, I can probably answer you yes, to, to be honest with you. There's a little bit of a sea change, too, that happened during my time there, because when I first got there, when we first formed Chisel, it was the late 80s still. And um, I mean, Chisel started playing under that name, I think in like late 89, which is when I was still also playing in like hardcore bands in New York, you know, back at home. And there really were just a handful of people playing music in bands at all, let alone original music, let alone punk music or punk influenced music. And then I guess for the majority of like 91, I was actually out of school for a while. And when I went back and finished, uh, Nirvana had happened. 
I witnessed the change. I mean, when I went back, there were a lot of newer kids who were, you know, who had more of an avenue uh, to this stuff. And so there were a lot more bands and uh, there was a lot more activity. And I mean, that was a good thing. No, I'm not saying that is like a snooty, that was a bad thing. You know, that was a good thing. Yeah. When you finished college, you went to D.C. with a band. Um, I, I spent most of the last tw- 20 years in D.C. And the music scene in D.C. is interesting and, and I think was more interesting then. <laughs> Did you feel like you were walking into an amazing scene that was evolving or were you too far in it to to think that? I would say I had a sense of, of how amazing it was. I mean, I thought it was amazing. You know, I... Uh, I knew people from there already from, you know, my previous years of just playing music. I had been fans of so many of the bands going back to the early 80s, many of whom were still making music in other configurations in D.C. I mean, I definitely knew that I was entering into a space where a lot of people who I respected and was a fan of and appreciated were still active. And and, um, I don't think I ever got so deep into it that I ceased to appreciate that. And probably because even my most immediate peers, like through all of those years, I lived with the uh, Nation of Ulysses makeup people. They were, and remain actually, you know, but during that time, especially, I think like they were some of the most creative and forward thinking people I've ever met in my life. And even though I spent every waking minute you know, of my life with them, it was a, a constant interesting exchange and I never got jaded or tired of it. What did you learn during that time? Like what kind of exchanges sort of fed into your musical or, or intellectual kind of evolution? You know, Ian Svenonius from Nation of Ulysses and, and the Makeup is a, is a really great cultural historian and um, cultural critic. I think that probably one of the best takeaways from my years of living with him was our just, you know, there was also largely before internet, like none of us had a computer or, or, I mean, internet existed, but we weren't tapped into it at that time. So it was just a lot of talking, you know, a lot of talking about, um, about music, about culture, about history, about how it all weaved together politics, history, music, culture. Is that what brought you to D.C.? I'm curious why you went to D.C. instead of, you know, New York or Chicago or somewhere else to pursue the music. No, you know, honestly, being in Indiana and our our bass player, Chris, uh, Chisel's bass player, Chris, was actually from South Bend originally. Uh, We had made a lot more local inroads in the scene in Chicago. And that was our initial plan was to move to Chicago. Uh, but John, our drummer, got uh, like an internship with Amnesty back in D.C., which is where he was from. And since I was moving anyway, and I had friends in D.C., I was like, well, let's move to D.C. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> You're known for your political, I don't know if political activity is the right word, but political consciousness, certainly, and the, the kind of punk rock roots. How did the political views develop for you? Was that always there aside from music or with music? How do you view that? I think I understood that it was always a part of music, um, so it never felt alien or embarrassing uh, or transgressive to bring that into my own music. It felt very natural. Early on, the bands that I was that first really influenced me musically were less kind of overtly political in any kind of screed 
way, which I also don't necessarily say negatively. But it's really hard to, for example, you know, I was also really into The Who like early on in my life. And it's really hard to watch a movie like The Kids Are All Right and just see the action and the, you know, wham, bam of mod culture at the time and sort of and not kind of understand something political about it, something like youth quakey, you know, to, to use a cheesy term about it. And I think that even as a kid, I got that. But I think that it was probably more when I started getting into hip hop in the early 80s that I started hearing explicitly, like, I am talking to you about an issue right now kind of music. Because I think even the punk stuff that I was listening to earlier on in the 80s was uh, broader. I mean, with the exception of The Clash was like broader and um, if it was political, again, it wasn't maybe so specifically explicit about immediate issues affecting a community, you know? Again, like going back to the mod thing, like things like the bands like The Jam, who I was into early on, you know, there's obviously a lot of politics in there, but it's either expressed personally and poetically or just kind of more broadly. Like there's less of a sense of, I'm speaking about uh, something very specific that's affecting my community uh, than there was in hip hop of the early 80s. Yeah, that makes sense. And DC, you being in DC, I mean, I assume I'm, because people who aren't familiar with it, living there can be interesting as a non-political, if you don't work in politics or the government to kind of like observe what's going on, but also be completely separate from it intellectually, but be so close to it physically that that, I'm curious if that fed into your creativity or if that sense of place was like really important to music that, that you wrote at the time. I think so. Yeah, I, I think that's true. You know, I've lived, um, I've lived a number of places at this point, and I, I, people can, I don't know, they can email you and argue if they if they think this is ridiculous. But I think like if you live in Boston, the transient culture there is largely a student oriented. You know, a lot of colleges and and the kind of like the life of the colleges, like the intellectual life of the colleges, the music life of the colleges, etc. That informs life to a degree there. And I think that the transient nature, not that DC doesn't have its plenty of colleges, but the transient nature of of government life there and how government infuses culture and society and etc. I mean, I do think that filters down even to just daily life. I mean, you know, I worked in a video store for years in Cleveland Park in DC and um you know, even just going like, oh, there's Eleanor Cliff, you know, what's she renting today, <laughs> you know, et cetera, you know, like you just write, you know, you just see all these people. It's occupying a part of your mind all the time. And then, of course, D.C. city politics was, you know, it was kind of a mess back then. <laughs> um, and uh, it was hard to even get your head around a lot of what was happening. And in a weird way, it was almost easier to just focus on the federal government, what the federal government was doing, uh, you know, all the time. And yeah. Strange times. Um, so in the the late 90s, um, Ted Leo and the pharmacist came together. What was your goal or vision for forming that band um, after Chisel had broken up? And I think you were kind of making music in the meantime, but how did that all come together? And what was your vision? So truly, Ted Leo and the Pharmacists as a band didn't really come together until I would say the year 2000. 
um, though it had been forming <laughs> for a little bit of time before that, I started playing solo uh, very soon after Chisel broke up um, at the behest of other friends. Um, the, this band, this DC band called The Warmers, which was uh, Alec Mackay and uh, Amy Farina and Juan Carrera, who were all friends. And they had like a long weekend of shows you know, they were going down into Virginia. They're playing like Blacksburg and Charlottesville and, you know, some other places like that. And I was lamenting, you know, about having recently quit Chisel. And they were like, why don't you just come play with us? I was like, well, I'm sure you, <laughs> I don't want to just jump on your bills. And they were like, no, just come play, you know, just, just come with us, come play a couple songs, you know? So that was the first time I really um, stepped out and played solo and I enjoyed it. So I, you know, I started doing that more the pharmacists thing actually came about because uh, Amy was the drummer of the Warmers and is now the drummer of the Evens with, with Ian McKay. She and I did a um, tape project in the 90s where we recorded backing tracks and then we would basically karaoke over our own songs. And it was it was fun, and it uh, predated you know the days of people playing with their own digital backtracks. So I'll plant a flag there and say that <laughs> say, say that we started that. Um, we called ourselves the pharmacists, I think. I think that was the first iteration of the pharmacists. And then so when I started taking it seriously and actually touring, I would bring a big reel to reel tape machine with me that I had done some backing tracks on and not for the whole set, but for certain songs in the set, I would play along with my tracks. And so for a long time, that was the pharmacists. And then, yeah. And then like, um, you know, and then little by little, I just started writing things that, uh, you know, I missed playing with a band and I, I started writing things that were better suited to having a band and went through a, a, a couple of personnel iterations. And then when I made the Tyranny of Distance record in, I think it was 2000, everyone who played on that record had at one point or another gone out with me as part of this like rotating, <laughs> you know, cast of what was the pharmacists. And um, it was only really on the touring of that record that the band came together as such. What was that period like when once the band did come together? Because you were prolific in terms of the albums. I think, you know, five or six albums came out over a nine-year period or something like that. And was that all continuing to push forward? Were there obstacles or challenges there? I'm just curious to hear kind of your reflection on that journey. Yeah, well, when this all started, I, I will tell you that w when Chisel ended, it's hilarious to think of in hindsight because I'd only really been you know, for real playing music in bands for like a decade at that point, you know, maybe like 11 years or something. And I was already like, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done with this. Forget it. You know, and uh, I, when I started playing by myself, it was really just because I wanted to play music and all of the meta aspects of being in a band, I was over and they weren't really part of the picture. And I would say even through the making of and initially touring on the tyranny of distance that remained the case it was truly just for the love of doing it i mean we were we were also like i mean we were playing we were making literally zero dollars i mean zero zero dollars and playing you know small small shows and with chisel we were never able to tour as much as i wanted to so that was that was part of the impetus for this too like once this band solidified and i had turned 30 you know, I was also like, 
man, I made it this far. <laughs> like, it was not depressing. It was almost more like hell. Maybe I should just stay on the road, you know? <laughs> like, I, there was a lot of touring that I wanted to do in my 20s that I didn't really do as much of. You know, I love playing with this band. Let's do it. And that's kind of what we did. We just stayed on the road forever. And uh, we made a decision pretty early on to, we, not that we never opened for other people or did opening slots on tours, but it was pretty rare. Usually we would have to be friends with the other band or something. And because I think we entered into this whole thing, and, and I'll say we now at this point, because I think we were all kind of in agreement, because I think we all entered into this period feeling the same way about what I was talking about before, the kind of meta aspects of being in a band, you know, making it selling records, you know. I think we realized really early on that we had a better time if we made the night our night. You know, if it was like, it didn't matter if there were five people or 500 people, as long as it was kind of like we were creating the space, we could play as long as we want and do what we want and um, et cetera. That was the better kind of show for us. And uh, we just really leaned into that. And then to jump ahead, uh, you know, three years later, it started providing us with some actual returns, which brought all the meta aspects of everything back into the picture, you know? Yeah. So the life on the road and the, the touring and the live shows really fueled you in, musically and creatively is, is sort of what I'm hearing. Yeah. And um, part of not caring about all of that meta stuff and part of like touring in an I'm over it way that was positive was not that it led us into being like jaded old rockers, but it, I think it, it helped us all. Certainly I'll, I'll speak for myself uh, as a, as a writer, like it helped me take my seatbelt off. We're all beholden to certain expectations, whether we're aware of it or not, you know, and, uh, and certain uh, walls and, and uh, blinders and, and things that when, when you're operating within any kind of, you know, scene, however big or small, whether you know it or not, I think that you're operating under certain strictures, you know. Making a semi-conscious step to not really uh, care about being part of any world of music allowed us to do what we wanted to, you know? And um, so, for example, like the tyranny of distance was a step forward for me creatively in a lot of ways because I was just having fun in the studio with my friends, you know? There was zero concern about how it was going to land or, you know, anything. I mean, we didn't even have the band, the touring band together while we were making, while I was making the record, you know, it was literally just like, who's around? It happened that most of the people, you know, I, I had played with and they were friends and, you know, people were coming in and out of the studio and we were doing it late at night on, you know, the, on the cheap at a, at a friend's studio. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting in these conversations, I hear this a lot that once you take the like as you put it the seatbelt off is when things really start to click or or you're not trying to fit into someone else's you know perception of what the band should be and it's just it's right. fascinating yeah and i think that you know i think that you'd be hard pressed to find someone who would say like oh yeah yeah i definitely was trying to to fit into somebody else's perception but we all do it whether we think we're doing it or not to a degree you know to varying degrees you know
I want to jump forward to 2013 when you joined forces with Amy Mann, who is also now your podcasting co-host. Yes, that's <laughs> but, right. But yeah. you, <laughs> which we have to talk about because, you know, this is a podcast. But you formed the both and then released a, a self-titled record the following year. And what was it about that collaboration that, that made that make sense for you at the time? And what did you kind of learn from that? So Amy and I had been friends for a while, and uh, but we never toured together until like 2012. And we did a lot of touring together in 2012. And it was during that time that I was, I was in a tough place with my then label and we had kind of wound down the touring cycle on the last pharmacist record, The Brutalist Bricks. And I was writing new stuff, but I didn't know what was going to happen with it or, you know, where any of it was going to land. And this is something that I've found in opening for people. I found this I found this to be a really fun way to deal with sometimes disconcerting situations. Like when the pharmacists toured with Pearl Jam a number of years earlier, they were fantastic, by the way. I just want to, nothing that I say here should reflect negatively on them at all. Like I, I could do a whole podcast about how much I love them, you know, especially after, after touring with them. But you're playing in these arenas and you know, there are some people who know who you are and they came early to see you. You have to accept that the vast majority of the people there have no idea who you are. The cool thing about Pearl Jam is that I think their fans trust their musical taste. So people do kind of show up to see the opening bands, you know. But what we realized is that that was also like a um, something of a, of a seatbelt removing moment because when you weigh those two factors against each other, either there are people in the audience who know who we are, they've seen us before, or there are people who have no idea who we are, then you are kind of free to like play new stuff, do covers, you know, mess around because the people who've seen you a bunch, uh, you know, they've seen you a bunch. So <laughs> here's something different in this weird different context. And the people who don't know you, well, it doesn't really matter, you know? Um, I've always maintained that there's more audience crossover with myself and Amy than people enter into interviews asking us if there are, you know? Um, but even that said, you know, sometimes I'd be touring with her and I would feel very safe bringing out new stuff that I wanted to just test and work on because, because of those factors that I, that I, you know, that I mentioned before. Sorry, this is a long winded way of saying that I started playing new stuff, a couple of songs, which, uh, really resonated with Amy. And we began talking about those specific songs, which I was sort of still working out on the road. We started working on them together. You know, she started at that point joining me during my set to play on some of these songs that we were at that point beginning to co-write. And it just kind of blossomed from there. You know, The stuff you guys did together is really cool. The vocal harmonies, the kind of close harmonies and the vocals, I think is one of the, the coolest parts. There's a lot of bands that do that, but your voices together really work well. And that's, Thank you. I don't know if you set out to do that particularly on the harmony vocally, but it really like shines through. Thanks. I mean, we, we did. Harmonies are really an important part of what we both do. Um, I've always tried to do them in my own music um, going back decades. And Amy is an expert at that. Uh, she's, you know, schooled and, and, uh, and is, has a fantastic voice and a fantastic ear for that. We really worked hard on nailing that. Yeah. We learned little things in making that record. Like I almost 100% of the time sing 20 milliseconds ahead of the beat, which when you're trying to craft your harmonies as tight as possible, <laughs> 
it, it can the it weirdly can sound like you know can sound like just jumpy enough to be jarring sometimes. So, and it's something I would have never noticed, but her ear noticed it, and we had to like delve into Pro Tools and go, yeah, wow, twenty milliseconds. Well, let's look at that one. Yep, twenty milliseconds. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> it turned out well. I want to um, jump to the present because. We're in sort of challenging times, and you've talked a lot about touring, and I know that you're, you've are you toured relentlessly for a long time. So just on the lifestyle front, as someone who's big on performances and tours and collaborations, how is this current pandemic situation affecting you creatively? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I, I, uh, I had some shows booked in March that we canceled, you know, days before they were supposed to happen. It was questionable even within the band, whether that should happen. I felt pretty strongly about it. And then we had some shows that were booked for June that we canceled right around the same time. Uh, you know, creatively, so the, I have to look at this in a number of different ways. I mean, creatively, I'm at home. I've spent years, you know, little by little getting to the point where I finally have like a studio that I feel that I can actually make things to to a level that I want to make them at in. I can keep working in that regard, and I will. Playing live shows is going to be tough. I put a bicycle up on, like, props and, like, the back wheel thing so that I can do some indoor biking. And uh, I mostly listen to books or podcasts when I'm doing that. But the other day, I was I wanted to listen to music, and I, I put on this playlist, which is my, like, front of house playlist. Like, I gave it to our sound person to play over the – PA, you know, at our shows. And it really struck me how much I miss that anticipatory, like liminal time between the band before us and when we start playing. Like when we're setting up and I can hear the PA music, we don't really have roadies. So like I'm setting my stuff up and I can feel the crowd, they're there. And I'm hearing all these songs that I'm used to hearing only in that context. And it was like this crazy, like, Proust, like Madeline moment for me while I'm like sweating on this dumb indoor bike that I jerry rigged, you know, <laughs> and and um, and it really reminded me how how much I'm going to miss that, and I say going to miss that because I'm not going back to it, at least not for the foreseeable future. Like I have to be careful, you know. My partner and wife is is like immunocompromised. That's something I have to be careful about, but. I think the thing that drove me to like immediately cancel shows was the idea of packing people into a venue together. Like, I, I mean, you know, if someone gets injured at a show, you would feel terrible about it if you had anything to do with it. You know, the very impetus for pulling people together into tight public spaces, if it's based on coming to see you... I don't feel great about that, you know? So I, I don't know when I'll feel okay about that. I think I feel a little more gun-shy about it than a lot of people that I know even. But that seems like a responsibility that I take seriously. And I don't really know how and when that's going to be doable again. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think from a music fan's perspective, I miss that too, the 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 music over the PA pre-show you're getting getting settled getting you know ready and and that, that's one of the best parts of going to a concert for for fans as well yeah I I realized that that might be like my favorite place to be I really I love like looking around at at the people in my band 
you're usually in a good mood and, you know, getting ready. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, I, that's something I'm definitely going to miss. Your sort of roots in uh, music and social consciousness and, and social commentary are really strong. And I'm curious if you think that music today is kind of living up to this moment of maybe unprecedented frustration with government and institutions and polarization and all that is music doing what it should be or and do you feel a responsibility to continue to do that uh uh, yes and yes i mean you know i i think that um there's always music that's living up to that we've toured with bands in the last few years who are living up to it in in ways that are teaching me things i i remember taking for example uh sad 13 on tour which is sadie dupuis from speedy ortiz's side project it's more of like a kind of pop songwriting band three women all really amazing and the songs are incredible and the content of the songs is important in lyrically in ways that I could probably never even have thought to like look into or you know a- achieve before and uh the fearlessness with which they speak about these subjects on stage and the brains and the grace with which they do it is is like inspiring and um and I I feel lucky to have always retained a foot in a world of music where I get inspired by those people coming up, you know, that I'm able to see and that I'm able to to tour with and, and play with and et cetera. Well, I want to ask, sort of like shift a little bit toward the future. Um, what are some like trends in music or, or things that you're seeing happening that are interesting or exciting to you? I'm not sure that I can speak to groupings of of uh, people or ideas or or movements in music that are particularly affecting to me right now. I think I experience that more on a on an artist by artist basis. Bands and artists that I've seen, you know, over the last couple of years that have blown me away in one way or another are probably not representative of any kind of trends. I mean, I mentioned Sad 13, that's one. Um, I saw a, a band from uh, Niger recently called uh, Les Fils de Illigadad. Really amazing. You know, where, what trend would they fit into? <laughs> you know, like pretty much nothing. You know, did some shows with old friend like Liz Fair last year. Like she's still great as part of a trend no you know like same with amy you know like amy continues to make great music i wouldn't put her as part of a trend like there are young hardcore bands encounter all the time like doing new and interesting things but as part of any kind of broader movement probably not you know like yeah yeah I want to ask you about kind of the future of music in a slightly different way. You used kickstarter to fund um, your last solo album the hanged man and just curious about how you see crowdfunding or, or other kind of projects like that that happen mostly remotely, I guess, between, you know, you and, and fans and then you're creating. What was that experience like? And do you see any kind of future in that in terms of how that might evolve? It's interesting. I mean, my experience with it has been up and down. It was initially very positive. Um, people responded in a, a really enthusiastic way to a level that I did not expect at all. It enabled me to make, you know, a double album using a, art by a, a graphic novelist who I really 
love and uh, working with a designer that I like and everything, uh, getting it mastered at a place that I that I like. Um, things that that no record label in their right mind would have given me money to do. Uh, that said, um, it's been really hard to do the fulfillment aspect of that for me. I think that there are you know two kinds of crowdfunding projects. One is the like people who mysteriously already have it all made and paid for and they're essentially recouping. It's more like a pre-sale or something. Uh, mine was lit- was literally funding everything. And so it took me a while to just finish it after <laughs> after the money came in, you know? Uh, and I'm still finishing shipping stuff to this day. It's been a couple of years. Um, but, you know, manufacturing certain things, especially weird items like custom seven inches and the custom seven inch box that it's supposed to come in, like, took forever to get made um and with crowdfunding you have to kind of wait until you have the budget to do it right you're not gonna yeah you know the money is only representative of an order ultimately it's not just free money you know you have to you have to turn it around into something and uh you know, I I have really found that I'm terrible at uh, running a record label. I mean, you know, it's it's again like this is something that I certainly put partly on my shoulders. Like I, looking back, there are definitely ways that I could have like drilled down and and handled some of it more quickly. But you know, I'm also trying to continually keep going as like a touring artist and etc. And um, people have done it better than me. <laughs> people have done it worse than me. I think in the future, as a model for going forward, I don't know that it's the kind of thing that as like a standalone model even should be the continuing way going forward. I think that um, I'd love to see a non-capitalist society where artists could offer more things for free. Um, That's not the reality of the situation. And in the political sphere, I'm happy to continue to work toward that situation, but in the uh, economic sphere, it's kind of impossible. But I do think that we're, I feel, I shouldn't say I think, I have no empirical data to back this up, but I feel that we're rounding a corner back toward a place where people are beginning to uh, be a little more understanding of that and uh, willing to actually like pay for even just a download. You know, I'm not necessarily feeling like I need to work with a label again. But I do think that um, a return to a more like austere album release kind of cycle as opposed to the like, woohoo, here's all this extra stuff if you, you know, pledge for this level, you know, which is what the, um, what a lot of the crowdfunding things encourage and which can be really cool. It's just really, it's tough to imagine doing that cycle after cycle after cycle. And I think that something like Bandcamp or, I don't know, one's own web store, maybe signing like a distribution thing with some indie distribution company would be uh, you know, a way to go for the future. Interesting experience for sure. <laughs> and a cool way to do it. I am really happy with that I got to make that album. You know, there's no other way that I would have been able to make that album. And I'm I'm really happy that I was able to do that and thankful. Your collaboration that you built with Amy Mann seems to have worked really well and seems to have expanded your horizons a little bit as I've seen you talk about in other interviews. Are there other collaborations that you'd like to do in the future? Are there people or types of people that you'd like to collaborate with? I would say yes, but I've been busy enough on ongoing projects that I have not put a ton of thought into that, to be honest with you. I've done uh, offhand 
things or, you know, guesty kind of things with people. Um, Jean Grey, uh, it's hard to, to pin Jean down as like hip hop artist or, you know, cause she does uh, a million, million things. She sings some backups on my last record and I threw some guitar to some stuff that she did recently. Those kind of guest things I love, I absolutely love doing. Uh, the deep level of collaboration of writing that I did with Amy is something that I think is tough to imagine replicating with a lot of people because so much of that was based on our closeness. I mean, we literally sat at a table and, you know, went through lyric ideas and treated it like a puzzle. You know, what do we, how do we feel about this line? How do we feel about this rhyme? How do we feel about this word? Can we make it better? Is it what we really want to say? You know, and those are things that you, you can only do if you're really safe, you know, if you really are not risking any kind of ego bruise or anything like that. I think going through that collaboration, it's taught me better how to throw out my ego for other things like that. You know, I know that there are people who, who do that kind of work professionally, co-songwriting and things. I've, I've tried to do that a couple of times in the past and have had varied you know, experiences with it. But that kind of deep collaboration in, in terms of writing you know, an, an entire song cycle, like an album or something, I'd have to spend more time with almost anybody to imagine doing that. You know? um, all right, we're getting toward the end, Ted. Just a couple more questions. What would Ted from 2000 think about Ted of 2020? <laughs> wow. It's so that's 20 years ago. Christ almighty. Wow. I feel like the same person in so many ways. Hey, the last 20 years has been more of a blur to me than the previous uh, 30. Um, and, uh, you know, I've learned a lot. Things that I've learned the most are about how to really work with other people, how to really make space. I mean, I'm saying this, I realize that this is kind of ironic as I remain, uh, you know, a quote unquote solo artist, you know, how to understand like kind of the privilege that I've had in getting my own voice out there and um, how to really listen to and make space for and incorporate the voices of and presence of other people and how to, um, how to really make a third thing out of that. Probably the 2000 me would not understand all of that, but if the 2000 me got to talk to the 2020 me, the 2000 me would maybe have gotten there a little sooner. <laughs> Thank you, Ted, for taking the time. This was really fun and great to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank you. And now here's Ted Leo with Ray Vaughn, which is a Buddy Holly cover, and his original songs, The Nice People Argument and William Weld in the 21st Century. Okay, uh, we talked a lot about early influences and really just scratched the surface, um, but we talked about Buddy Holly, and so just because it seemed like it was a fun idea, uh, I decided to do a Buddy Holly song. I will also tell you that one thing I remember very vividly from the Buddy Holly story with Gary Busey, though I probably haven't seen it since I was a child, is that there was a scene in the movie when, when Gary, Buddy, Buddy Gary is uh, making a lunch meeting or lunch date with like a label person in New York or maybe it was uh, an accountant or is a, it's a New York biz thing. 
you know, it felt very midtowny, you know. <laughs> um, and uh, they're talking about when to meet, and uh, Buddy says like into the phone. I think he's like two. Yeah, two sounds great. It's like two. Who eats lunch at two? Like that's practically dinner. I I may have been eleven or twelve when that came out, and I. You know, if I wasn't eating lunch at 11 or 12 at that point, I'd have been angry. Like, 12.30 was really pushing it. Uh, can you tell that I'm alone in these quarantine times in my home studio late at night? Um, what's that Bill Callahan song, Prince Alone in the Studio? I knew that before I asked the rhetorical question of what's that song. Uh... Not nearly as prolific nor uh, quality in terms of work as Prince alone in the studio at night. But I will press record momentarily. You will hear the sound change. Hopefully it will sound better. And, uh, and here we go. Well, little things you say and do Make me want to be with you Nice people argument. It's from uh, my first solo LP, and since we talked a bit about the transition time in the '90s from being in bands into the solo period, I thought this would be a a good one to pull out of the I don't know attic, basement, uh, straw, mothballs, dust, deep places. Um, anyway. Let's see when I start recording what that sounds like.
Cut out the cradle, still rockin', but aimless and endlessly missin' the beat. And I can't shake this cold as bottom turns into Don't you miss me around Because I'm coming on strong I'm going back underground Come on, we've been up here too long Sister, it's cold outside So come on in where it's warm And it feels like home And it feels like home We're home This is called William Weld in the 21st Century, and it's on the last album, which is called The Hanged Man, as in the tarot card. Le Pendu, if you get a French deck. Recording. William Weld sees the 20th century Pretend he won't need 
save his country He gave it away without a Thanks for joining us. Past, Present, Future Live is hosted and produced by RJB. The executive producers are Adam Kaplan and Kirsten Cluthy. Production, editing, mixing, and original theme music by Brad Stratton. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. Please visit OsirisPod.com to find more content and deepen your connection to the music you love. 